Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Again, today's scripture reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 12 through 16. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. you uh, pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your word, this narrative, this story from the life of David. Lord, we are um, we're just humbled to have this story. You working your, your providence, your purposes through the life of David this morning. Help us to see, um, see your plan in this, see your plan towards salvation in this, but even in our own lives this morning, Father. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's good to be here with you again this morning um, as we continue our, our series in the life of David. If you didn't know already, my second favorite football team are the Ohio State Buckeyes. I'm born and bred in Columbus, Ohio. My mother is an alumnus. It's pretty much impossible for me to not be a football, Ohio State football fan, and plus all they do is win. <laughs> and so that helps as well. And in case you're wondering, you might be wondering who's, well, if that's your number two team, who's your number one team? Well, it's not the Broncos, although that would be a good guess. And if you aren't sure who my number one team is, I would just invite you to take a look at my license plate. That should give you a good hint. And if you still don't know after that, well, Lord help you because there's nothing I can do for you. But the Buckeyes had a coach named Urban Meyer. Meyer was as much a psychologist as he was a football coach. He was a master motivator, getting his coaches and his players to sort of rise to the occasion. And one year, he gave each player one of those, you remember those rubber wristbands? that They were still all over the place, but they seemed to be a little more popular a while ago. And on this wristband, it said just, you know, Five symbols, three letters and two symbols. It was E plus R equals O. E plus R equals O. And it stood for this. Event plus response equals outcome. Event plus response equals outcome. He was training his team for high-pressure situations and for the relative adversity of college athletics. And I love that. I love that because things are going to happen that are completely outside of my control, right? Events are going to happen to me that are outside of my control. But I can control, I can choose how I respond to those events. And so in doing so, what we find and from that is that, that there will be a change perhaps in what the outcome actually is. So in our passage today, we're coming off of a massive event. 
David has defeated Goliath. I mean, this is a story that everyone knows, right? Believer and unbeliever alike. Everybody knows the story of David and Goliath. It's a massive event. But we're going to see many different responses in our passage this morning. We're going to see how Jonathan responds, how Saul responds, and even how David responds himself. But here's the thing. Even though E plus R equals O, maybe that outcome is a little bit in question. Maybe even if I respond in the right way, how that outcome works out, maybe it's in question. I don't know. Hopefully it goes the way I'd like. But the outcome here with David is never in question. Beneath, behind, above, and beyond, what we can see with our eyes, we will see that the unstoppable God is exercising His providence to accomplish His purposes. So we're going to break down these three chapters. I'll just give you an overview. It's going to be sort of that 30,000 jet tour, try to highlight some things that we see there um, that then tie in. I'm going to just spend a bit of time on each one of these main characters, as you can see in your outline. And then, of course... We need to just take a minute and think about, what does this tell us about our God? And that's how we'll, we'll manage this t- our time this morning. Now, I'm not going to be able to read. We've got three chapters this morning. As again, I'll just provide you some highlights and an overview. David is Jen, again, just beat Goliath. And the response really is overwhelming. Saul appoints him to his court. David's, I mean, really, David's humble days of shepherding are over. The people praise him as well. Saul's servants and the people of Israel are all behind David. He's their champion. But really in the first response that the narrator records, in the first response to this event, what we find is a a special exchange between Jonathan and David in the first four verses of chapter 18. And what you find there is Jonathan gives David his robe, his armor, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. And these are more than just a, hey man, I really like you kind of thing. This is, these are symbols of Jonathan's power and position as heir of the throne of Israel. And so why would he do that? Well, verse 1 tells us that the soul of Jonathan was knit to David. It's really interesting, was knit to David. And that he loved him as his own soul. And this isn't all of it either. On top of that, Jonathan actually makes a covenant with David. And so why would he do that? Why did he do that? Well, I think Jonathan recognized something in David that he did not see in his own father. He saw something that he didn't even see in his own life. And so he gave the symbols of his royalty, his power, his prestige to David. What did he see? Well, you've got to stay tuned in to find out. David returns home from his victory, and he's on the ticker tape parade through Times Square. It's kind of like Victory Over Europe Day in New York City, New York City, right? And said, now we're in Israel and it's the Philistines have been defeated. And the women sing a song, Saul has defeated his thousands and David has defeated his ten thousands. Well, this song landed on Saul's ears like nails on a chalkboard. It enraged him and jealousy took over. The scriptures say that from that day forward, Saul eyed David. From that time on, Saul's mission was to destroy David. What's so sad is that like so many leaders before him and so many leaders after him, he was deeply, deeply insecure. Any challenge to his name, perceived or real, was a threat 
And so it had to be eliminated. It's interesting what happens next. Instead of what in restraining Saul's evil intent, the Lord actually sends a harmful spirit upon Saul. It says that a harmful spirit rushed upon Saul, which is the same as having sort of an overwhelming force. He was overcome by this evil spirit. So much so that we see he actually tried to spear David twice. He threw spears at him twice. Well, why would the Lord do this? Why would he allow this? Well, let's keep going and see. Saul tries many other ways to get rid of David. First, he appoints him commander of a thousand. And the scriptures don't really say this, but I think it's safe to assume that Saul really hoped that the enemy, that the Philistines would kill David, would do his dirty business for him. But instead, David had, quote, had success in all his undertakings. And I love what the scriptures say in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 18. And when Saul saw that he had great success, that is David, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Backfire. Then Saul tries another tactic. What if I give him one of my daughters? And I require a ridiculous dowry. I'm not going to ask for money from David. I'm going to ask for a piece of the male anatomy from a hundred of the Philistines for him to have my daughter, Michael. Surely the Philistines will kill him when I do that. Instead, what happens? David comes back with 200 of the unmentionable parts. And the scriptures say in verse 29, Saul was even more afraid of David. And then in verse 30, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Backfire again. Saul's attempts to kill David are like... (laughs) Golfers will get this. Saul's attempts to kill David are like swinging a golf club too hard. Golfers know where I'm going with this, but for those that don't enjoy the greatest game ever invented... It's generally true that when you swing too hard, you get bad results. You start playing military golf, left, right, left, right, instead of hitting it down the middle. The harder Saul tried to kill David, the more the Lord protected and defended him. And at this point, you might think Saul would back down, like, hey, this is a battle I can't win. Why would I just keep trying to go against? Clearly, the Lord is in this. What am I doing here? But that's not what he does. In fact, he doubles down. At the beginning of chapter 19, the scriptures tell us that Saul spoke to Jonathan and all his court that they should kill David. Jonathan, being the amazing friend that he is, talked Saul down. Saul changed his mind and brought David back into his court. But here's the thing. It didn't last long. There was more war with the Philistines, more success for David, more consuming hatred from Saul. And for his next attempt on David's life, he sent henchmen to David's house to kill him. David's wife, Michael, warns him to run away and then bluffs, telling the men that David is sick. Finally, they enter the house and she has stuffed a household idol into his bed to make it appear as if he's been there all along, when of course he's long gone. So David escapes again, and this time he leaves town for Ramah, where Samuel is. 
And before long, Saul hears that David is there and sends an envoy to get him. They show up and are overcome by the Spirit of God and begin to prophesy. So Saul sends another envoy. Go get David. Bring him back from Ramah. They show up. They start to prophesy. So Saul sends another envoy. They show up. They begin to prophesy. And I think at this point, Saul decides, you know what? If you want a job done right, you got to do it yourself. So he goes to Ramah, and what happens to him? Just like the other three envoys before him, the Spirit of God comes upon him. He falls down before Samuel and begins to prophesy. And not only that, he strips down to his skivvies. His humiliation is absolute and complete. And that brings us to chapter 20. Until now, we don't know much about how David is doing. It's really interesting. The narrator tells us what happens to David and what David does throughout this story, but we really don't know how he's feeling or even necessarily what he's thinking until right here in chapter 20 in verse 1. We say him ask Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Can you imagine how he is feeling right now? I mean, hopefully no one here has ever experienced anything like this, you know, this kind of persecution. But I know many, if not all of us, know the anguish of the soul that David is feeling, that deep anguish that this something is not right. Anguish that comes from being falsely accused. But if there is one thing that David must have seen by this point is that God is sustaining him. God is providing a way of escape. Perhaps he thought maybe Jonathan was the way of escape when Jonathan helped him out the first time. Perhaps he thought Michael was his way of escape when she told him to run away. But when he went to Ramah, what did Samuel do when everybody showed up? Samuel didn't do anything. It was the Spirit of God. God directly intervened to save David. It was clear evidence to David, I believe, at that point that he knew God was in the middle of this. And so while his soul is anguished, we find a man who carries on by the sustaining hope that God is with him. So in chapter 20, we kind of enter this chapter and there's still a shred of hope that Saul hasn't completely lost his mind and that he isn't completely against David. David and Jonathan test that theory when David misses an important feast at Saul's table. He said, I'm going to hang back and let's see how Saul reacts to me not being at this feast of the new moon. On the first night, Saul says nothing. He thinks that David excused himself due to uncleanness. But on the second night, when he asks, where is the son of Jesse? Jonathan lies and says that he went to his hometown of Bethlehem for a sacrifice. And Saul sees right through the lie and explodes. This is really the climax of these three chapters right here. He calls out Jonathan, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Modern English has an equivalent phrase that most of you know, but cannot be repeated in this context. (laughs) Saul continues, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore... Send and bring him to me, for he shall surely 
die. And indeed, the die is cast. There is no turning back. David and Jonathan go through an elaborate arrow shooting scheme to communicate the outcome of their test to each other. And after Jonathan's page runs back to the city with his arrows and leaves them, Jonathan and David meet one last time. And it's interesting, you see how the two of them meet, and it says that they weep together, but it says in verse 41, they kissed one another and wept with one another, but who wept the most? David wept the most. His anguish is perhaps its greatest point. David's expulsion from the earthly king's presence is made complete. It's done. But he is closer to his heavenly king than ever before. So that's our 30,000-foot overview. What can we learn here from our three primary sort of characters from this story about their response to this massive event and the things that take place after it? Well, you see in the outline there, we're going to look at Jonathan's covenant love. We'll look at Saul's consuming hatred. We'll look at David's confident trust. And then finally, the Lord's constant provision. Well, Jonathan was a great guy. He really was a great guy. I think we all would have liked to have known Jonathan, but he was an even better friend. We all need a friend like him, and we all need to be friends like him. Well, what made his friendship so great? There's a lot that we could say, but if we could say one thing, it would be this. Great friendship builds the other person up. Great friendship builds the other person up. It seeks the best for the other person. It loves the other person, which means gentleness, but also being frank, speaking the truth in love. The three things in particular that I just kind of saw in the scriptures here about true friendship or great friendship that sort of fall under that idea of building another person up. Great friendship feels. I mean, this part of David's story, these chapters 18 through 20, it's really bracketed. It's interesting. It's really bracketed by an expression of feeling. Right? At the start in verse 1 of chapter 18, it says that Jonathan's soul was knit to David and that he loved him as his own soul. And at the end, the two men weep together at their loss. True friendship feels with one another, both joy and loss. True friendship acts. Jonathan's covenant with David wasn't just a matter of feeling. He took specific actions that showed his love for David. And at great risk to himself, by the way, going up against his father, the king, who could easily have him killed. Friends stick their necks out for each other. They say, you are worth it. And lastly, true friendship or great friendship is loyal. Jonathan is loyal to David. He seeks David's best first. He won't allow Saul to speak poorly of him. And I would just say a loyal friend defends. Jonathan's friendship wasn't about what David could do for Jonathan or what Jonathan could get from David. It was about serving David. And as he did so, mutual benefit arose. They both benefited. Jonathan protected and saved David, right, multiple times. And Jonathan found purpose and meaning, so much so that he said, here, you have my symbols. 
I see the Lord's anointing on you. Well, let's look in a totally opposite direction at Saul's consuming hatred. Saul was the exact opposite of Jonathan. He was consumed with hatred for David. I remember at a young age saying, it was in the car, I remember saying I hated so-and-so from school. My mom said, Ben, we don't say that we hate other people. We don't hate people. You can hate things like peas and olives. By the way, I still do. But you cannot hate other people. That's not what God would have you do. Well, that made an impression on me. Um, That's not language you should ever use about another person. Full stop. You can hate their actions, their choices, whatever. But you cannot hate them. But unfortunately, that's a lesson Saul did not learn. Remember in chapter 20, when Saul kept referring to David as the son of Jesse the son of Jesse this, the son of Jesse that. He couldn't even bring himself to say David's name. That's how consumed with hate he was. He held David in contempt. He was dehumanizing David. Now my guess is that hate for your neighbor, I hope, hate for your neighbor is not an issue for most of us the vast majority of the time. But I'll tell you, hate has a first cousin, It's called contempt. Contempt has the aim of degrading and excluding others. Dallas Willard observes that our contempt for others is shown in our speech. We refer to them as garbage, refuse, or even excrement. This comes from a heart of judgment and contempt. Willard goes on to say, in most professional, quote, in most professional circles in high society where one might hope for the highest moral sensitivity, contempt is a fine art. Practicing it is even, practicing it is even a part of being in quote, good standing. Not to know whom and how to despise of one of, is one of the surest signs that you are not quite with it. And you are yourself mildly contemptible. We must stop ourselves and simply say, this is not what it means to be a Christian. I am not reflecting the love of Christ when I feel and say these things. But Saul left his hate unchecked and it destroyed him. He was manic. An evil spirit rushed upon him as we heard. Hate and anger and rage ate him up. Saul could not be more opposite than Jonathan. Jonathan's love built him and David up. What's interesting though about Saul is that his hatred had the opposite of its intended effect. David kept having success after success, and it destroyed Saul. And that brings us to David and David's confident trust. If Jonathan's response was his coveted love and Saul's his consuming hatred, we should remember David for his confident trust in the Lord. Despite Saul's unjust persecution, David kept on trusting in the one who delivered delivered him from bears and lions, and even delivered Goliath into his hands. And he did not bear up on his own strength. He called upon the Lord as his shield and defender. He could have easily been overwhelmed by fear, but he bore up through his confident trust that the Lord would provide for him. David wrote Psalm 59. It's about when Saul sent his men to watch his house to kill him. This is about the second half of chapter 19, that whole episode takes place. Excuse me, the first half 
of chapter 19. But this psalm, Psalm 59, goes hand in hand with that. He wrote it at the same time. And it's interesting how he describes the Lord. Verses 9 and 10 of Psalm 59, he says, O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. And then he concludes the psalm in verses 16 and 17 by saying something very similar. He says this, O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress. The God who shows me steadfast love. Do you see how he finished his psalm? He says what? The God who shows me steadfast love. He didn't include those words because they rhymed. He didn't include those words because he thought, that's a neat concept about God. It'd be cool if God had steadfast love for me. No, he wrote those things because he knew them, experienced them, felt them deep in his bones. David's confident trust was the overflow of the love of God for him. His confident trust began and ended with his firm belief that God loved him. And not only that, that his love wasn't conditional. That no matter what David would do, that God would always love him. He knew, we talked about this earlier this morning, David knew how the story was going to end. And it might be that Saul was going to kill him. He didn't know if he was going to make it through, but he knew that if Saul killed him, God still had him. And his trust was well-founded. Look at verse 12 of chapter 18. It says that Saul was afraid of David because why? The Lord was with him. Go to verse 14. It says, And David had success in all his undertakings. For why? The Lord was with him. Go to verse 28, chapter 18. Saul saw and knew that the Lord, what? Was with David. The Lord was with David in all his endeavors and in his persecution. This allowed him to behave in ways. This is what I want you to hear. First, that God loves you. But second of all, it allowed David to behave in ways that are completely contrary to normal human wisdom. By human wisdom, what should he have done? He should have retaliated against Saul, right? Should he not have grabbed Jonathan and plotted to overthrow the throne and the two of them ruled together? I mean, he's the guy that delivered Goliath's head on a plate. Here, I did what you said to do. The depth of the injustice and betrayal is hard to fathom, really. So you could hardly have blamed David if he had come after Saul. But instead of coming after Saul, what did he do? He did the exact opposite. Before he knew God, or excuse me, because he knew God loved him, he was free to live in a radically different way, a radically different way. Before Jesus commanded his followers to love your enemies, pray for your enemies, turn the other cheek, give your tunic, walk the second mile, before he had ever heard those words, they hadn't even been spoken yet. David, a man after God's own heart, did those things. Why? Because he knew 
he was deeply loved. Man, how different is that than how the world would tell us how to live? We are told to cut off negative people from our lives. Toxic relationships must be eliminated. If someone is bringing you down, cut them out. I googled cut off negative friends. Man, talk about toxic. One quote I found said this. It's actually really sad. I mean, it's funny, but it's sad. One quote I, because we just have, we've got neighbors who are just bringing this stuff in like it's real. Ugh. Here's what it said. The idea is quite simple. Stay a light year away from people who make you feel less about yourself. What garbage. But when we know the love of God like David did, we can be patient with the one who scorns us or who looks down on us. We can be strong enough to walk away from an abusive relationship, knowing that our identity is hidden in Christ with God. Our abuser doesn't get to define who we are. Guess what? We don't even get to define who we are. Only one gets to define who we are, and that is God. With, not, with knowledge of God's love for you, you can move out in, into your relationships. It's radical, but you can do this. And I'm preaching this to myself, friends. We can move out into relationship in confident trust because he loves us. So we've looked at Jonathan, Saul, and David, but I titled this sermon, The Unstoppable God, for a reason. So let's look at God's constant provision Above all these three men, I believe the primary point, so if there's one thing you take away, what, is, what are these three chapters about? I want you to hear this one thing. The point of our passage this morning is God's purposes and providence are unstoppable. He will accomplish his mission. Look at the evidence from this story. A young man slays a giant with a sling and a stone. He's got no business doing that. He's brought from the company of sheep to the company of a king. Listen to all the times Saul until intended to kill David, but it didn't work out. Three spear chucks. There's one we didn't talk about. We'd mentioned the two, but there were three times he threw a spear and missed. Terrible aim. The dowry from Michael that, David, that put David in significant peril. Saul sends a delegation to kill him in his home, but he escapes. He sends three delegations to Ramah and then goes himself every time there. The Spirit of God overcomes them. They prophesy. And when David doesn't show up for the new moon feast, Saul loses his mind and sets out to destroy David. But what happens? Again, Jonathan saves him. The bottom line is that if the Lord weren't in this, we wouldn't have this story. But he was. And it happened. Why? Why? Because God is working toward Jesus through David. David is the key forerunner. Of Jesus, And you might be asking then, well, what does that have to do with me? Well, how does it change my life? How does it help me right here and now? Well, first, I think it, I hope that it's comforting to you, that there is one bigger than you who cannot be moved. In a life where people change their minds and renege, where promises are made and broken with regularity, we know that we know one who never reneges. And never backs out of a promise. When Israel, just give you two stories. You guys know these stories, but it's good to be reminded. When Israel entered the promised land, God fulfilled his word to sustain them. 
It's interesting, the, the book of Joshua outlines how that process went, and it's funny, I, there's some great verses from Joshua, right? You know, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Man, that's a great life verse. Another one that some of you probably have in your house. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Great verses from Joshua, love them, but I would tell you they are not what Joshua, the book of Joshua, is about. Joshua chapter 21 and verse 45 is what it's about. Listen to this. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Every promise that he made came to pass. That's our God. Remember the promise Jesus made about the temple? He said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it again. And of course, everybody's like, you're crazy, man. It took 46 years to build this thing. What are you talking about? Of course, he wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about himself. And he did rise from the dead on the third day. He kept his word. That's because God's word, his promises are infallible. We talk about the word of God being inspired, that it's from him. He used human authors but he was the inspiration behind those human writers. We talk about God's word being inerrant. I mean, there's no error in it, right? We also talk about God's word being infallible because it will never fail. Now, here's the thing. Some of his promises are not yet fulfilled. They may not yet be fulfilled, but they will never, ever be broken. Now, think about Amos. Amos was crying out for justice in the nation of Israel. And when we wrapped up Amos, Bentley gave us a wonderful thought to conclude our study. I want to do right until God makes everything right. And he will make everything right. Because he's the God that always keeps his word. Remember, he delivered Isaac from Abraham's dagger. He delivered Israel from Pharaoh. He sustained them for 40 years in the desert with manna, quail, and water. He brought them into the promised land and on and on. And ultimately, he has provided a deliverer for us, his own son, Jesus making good on a promise that he made at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, that he would send one to deliver us from our sin and to defeat our accuser, Satan. So you can trust him. He always makes good on his word. He provides. Now, just one last thought on this before we conclude. I know when you are hurting, that can feel pretty abstract, Right? Like, I don't really feel God's provision in my life right now. Like, that's really intangible. I mean, it sounds great, but I don't feel it at all. I'll just give you this thought. Sometimes the fact that you are still here breathing in the midst of your trial tells me that God is providing for you. So here's what's really wild, though, about all this. His decision to provide for you is not based upon your performance. God is not fickle. He's not mercurial like Saul. His will, his purposes, his providence is completely settled. It is unchanging and it is unstoppable. In conclusion, the last time I preach, I, I ask the question, where's Jesus in this passage? But I think this time it's a little easier to see him. Amos was, you know, through a dimly lit mirror. Here, I think it's a little easier to, to see Jesus. We have David. I mean, my goodness. We have David, who is the man after God's own heart. Type of Christ, as Alex said, an exemplar. 
of Jesus. But we also see Jesus in Jonathan, I think. We've already talked about how great a friend Jonathan was to David. And we looked at what it means to be a great friend, a true friend, to show covenant love, one who builds up, who feels, who acts, who defends, who's loyal. Jonathan was a great friend, but he was only a shadow of the friendship that Jesus offers us. Jesus is the friend that we can never be. (laughs) Despite our on-again, off-again ways, he is a friend that is faithful and true. And on our own, here's here's the reality, on our own, without God's grace and mercy, we're actually a lot more like Saul than Jonathan or David. Do you remember... When, how things went when Jesus, this was uh, Passover week, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. What did the people say? They took off their cloaks, they threw them down for his donkey to ride across, they took palm fronds, they waved them, and what did they say? They said, Hosanna, which is the same as save us. Save us, Jesus, save us. And a few days later, what were they screaming? Crucify, Jesus, crucify Perhaps we'd like to think we wouldn't have done that. Well, we would have been faithful to him, but I think we should be honest with ourselves. Outside of God's grace, we'd have been right there. Despite this, though, despite this betrayal, Jesus did not turn his back on them or on us. He did the opposite. In fact, he prayed for them. He does not turn his back on you. In fact, his love for you is so great, it's so great that he willingly and lovingly gave up his life for you. Jesus' death on the cross is the greatest act, I mean, Jonathan was an amazing friend, but the greatest act of friendship ever, if you will, was Jesus' death on the cross for you and for me. Jonathan stood up for a friend, Jesus stood up for his betrayers. And because of his great love for you, you can be like David. You can live radically different then the world will tell you to live. You can turn away from old habits and patterns of behavior and thinking. You can be renewed in your heart. You can learn new ways. Jesus' ways as, as his bondservant, just a fancy way of saying slave, as his apprentice and as his friend. You can know true freedom. You can know true acceptance. You can know how your story ends. You can be who God made you to be. You can know and experience real life. God provided for David, and he was with him. And he has provided for you through the life, death, and resurrection of your Savior and friend, Jesus. His providence and purpose for you are not like David's. I don't think anybody in this room has that kind of role in God's story. And oftentimes it's hard to see or know exactly what his purposes are, but there's one thing I can assure you about God's providences and providence and purposes is that he wants you to come to him through his son, Jesus. Would you please stand with me and pray? Father, we're so thankful for your son, Jesus. Lord, we do see him so clearly in this story. We see him in your son, Jonathan and the great friendship that he had for David. And we see him in David, how David lived so radically different than our flesh would have us live and the world would tell us how to live. Lord, we are so thankful for them and for the great salvation that gives us life 
eternally, but even life today to walk with you. Help us be who we truly are in you this week. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.